0: Hey, we're studying through the book of Romans, so if you have your own Bible, you can open up to chapter five. It's the much more chapter. Do you remember from last week? And we saw last week that the chapter begins with seven really spectacular benefits of our justification. And Paul lists them one after the other, almost like just this barrage of amazing things that God has given to us, including peace, peace with God, which then brings peace with ourselves, with those around us, and even with the created universe. We have access into his grace. We have a new perspective on the difficult things that come into our lives. We're able to understand better what God's doing through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life and experiencing his love as we reflect on what he's done for us. As we look through the list, we see that we're no longer under God's wrath, but instead we have an eternal home waiting for us and a life right now to make a difference. So, as we look through the book of Romans, we could see that it's centered on God's righteousness. Is God righteous in his dealings with us? Remember the first three chapters, God's showing us what we're really like. We tend to compare ourselves with each other, don't we? And obviously we're better, right? I'm much better than that person and that person. I would never want to be like them. But God doesn't look at us that way. He sees us as we truly are. And then he tells us the truth. And so it's difficult to read Romans 1 to 3 because it shows that we're all guilty, every one of us, and we can't pay our debt. What are we going to do? And so God tells us the amazing truth of the gospel at the end of chapter 3 that it's Jesus Christ himself who will pay our debt for us, he'll erase all of our sin and give us his own righteousness and that's what we call justification. Justification comes to all those who put their trust in Jesus, and then in chapter four of Romans, Paul shows us that the way that we get that is not because we're good enough, because we're not. We can't work for it or earn it, so how do we get it? It's a gift. You receive it. You open it for yourself, and it becomes yours. Almost too good to be true, isn't it, everyone? almost unbelievable, but that's our great God. So, I just have to tell you that I was flipping through the channels this week, and I came across, I think it was on AMC, does anybody know? Uh, The Jaws movies came on, one after the other, and I think when the last one finished, they started over again. Do you remember the original Jaws, 1975? Anybody ever see that? A few, yeah, okay, so you did see it. I think probably the best. Do you think of the Jaws series? I don't know. By the time you get to Jaws 4, it seems like things have really fallen off. I don't know. Like you can see the tagline on here, like, you know, what we're most fearful of is a 40 foot mechanical depiction of what a great white might look like, but it doesn't look like that at all in the movie. And so you're like, oh my goodness, that looks terrible. Like if you want to watch Jaws four. That's up to you. But I'm just going to tell you, you're probably going to waste about two hours or more. And um, it's not a very good movie. But one thing that you can see that I found interesting, 1987, and how much the world has changed. Don't you think man's deepest fear is a mechanical 40-foot great white shark? I don't think so. What would you say? Our greatest fear, it seems like uh, that was basically before the internet. And now that we have the internet, all our fears are gone, right, everyone? The Internet pretty much solved every problem on Earth, didn't it? No. No, Now it seems like we're more fearful now. In fact, all the studies are showing that. In fact, the younger generation, it's called a mental health crisis because they have so much fear and anxiety, and people are tracing it back to, well, one big factor is, this, is the smartphone, and it's a ubiquitous nature. It's everywhere, all the time, continuously feeding us with fearful things. The thing that caught me about the Jaws movies though was that there's a longing for a hero, isn't there? In every story it seems that there's a longing for a hero to come and save us. It's in our nature because that's what the gospel is. God planted that in every human heart, regardless of what religion they're from, or what country they grew up in. There's something in our hearts that makes us realize we need someone to come and rescue us. And that's exactly what Romans is all about, he has provided a real hero, not, not a fake hero. I don't know who your favorite is. Is it, is it Captain Marvel? Is it Batman, Spider-Man, Iron Man? Do you have a favorite? Those are made-up heroes, and we love to watch those stories. But Jesus is the true hero, and the Bible shows us that so clearly, especially in the book of Romans. So, Jaws the Revenge, I don't know if you remember, this is the fourth one, and there's a tagline on this movie, And Joel's just gonna reveal that right now. It says, This time it's personal. Does anybody remember this movie? It's because, like, it has a really terrible plot in the movie where um, they somehow get the baby of the great white shark and they kind of like kidnap the baby, put it into captivity. Long story, I guess, but the baby dies in captivity. So this mama great shark is now gonna get everybody in the Brody family. So it travels like all the way to the Bahamas to get them. Anyway, long plot and not a very good one. But what I, what I noticed as I was just flipping through, this time it's personal. And I wonder, is it personal for you? Is the gospel and your true hero, Jesus, is it personal? It was for Paul. You remember Paul who wrote this. He was on his way because he believed that Jesus wasn't real. He was on his way to persecute and even kill people who believed in Jesus. But do you remember what happened on the way? He met Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to him and it changed absolutely everything in his life. And what about you? Has it become personal to you? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus or just know about him? As we look through the book of Romans, we can see Paul's insights into his personal relationship with Jesus, but also his incredible insight into the Old Testament scriptures and his understanding of what Jesus actually came to do. So we're gonna have to have a review because I'm kinda gonna treat you like my class at school. Is that okay? So we're gonna have a quiz. The first one is we've been going through different words that are related to this topic. And the first word is justification. Does anybody remember what it means? Just tell your neighbor if you remember what it means. What's justification? I'm sure all of you remember from last week. Nobody? remember. Justification means to be declared righteous. Even if you're not righteous, you're declared like as by a judge, yes, you are, you're righteous. And then it's just as if you've never ever sinned. And more than that, just as if you've always done right and we learned that the judge is righteous in doing that because someone paid your debt. It wasn't just that he could say, well, we'll just pretend that didn't happen this time, we'll overlook that. No. A high debt was paid so that you could be justified. There's a second word, which is grace. Do you remember last week? These are key words in the book of Romans and key words for us today too, grace. And we said there's a little like acrostic, an acronym that you can use to remember. Do you remember? It basically means gift. If you remember, just tell your, your partner, your buddy right next to you. What's that word? God's riches at you guys have such a good memory. God's riches at Christ's expense, right? It's a gift of God to us. And as we understand what that really means, what, a, what an amazing gift it was. And so we said, we learned from Harold's New York, New, York style, New York style deli, remember last week, that God doesn't just give us like little tiny European McDonald hamburgers. He's going to give us the whole thing and he's going to keep on giving. Do you remember the word we used? I'm not very impressed with my teaching right now. (laughs) Lavish. Do you remember? He lavished it upon us. He showered us with His goodness and His gifts. That's what the Bible's all about. Some people think the Bible's a book of rules that you try to keep to become a better person, and hopefully when your life's over, God will let you into heaven. That's not it at all. The Bible says none of us is ever good enough to get into heaven, but Jesus Christ came and paid the debt of our sin so that all of us could be lavished with God's love and His goodness so we could be justified. And there's one more word that we need to learn today, and that's the word imputation. Okay, We don't use this word much in our vocabulary. If anybody here is into statistics, you might use it, because in statistics we use this word to mean that we're going to substitute a number for a piece of missing data in a data set. It would take me too long to explain all that, but let me just say it this way that basically imputation means, Joel's going to put the definition up there, that imputation, oh, one more, there you go. It means that we're treated as if it's ours. It means that it's credited to your account. It means that it's considered to be true. Okay, And I'll explain a little bit about what that means, but it's a key word in today's passage in Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12, and I have to tell you right away, you're going to notice something as we begin to read that what Paul is now going to do, he just explained the seven benefits of our justification, and they are spectacular, everyone. If you missed it last week, go back and read through that. It's almost like taking a tour through an art museum, and we're going too fast, we're looking at all the paintings. You have to go back and spend a couple of hours in front of each one, and look at what God has done for you. Verses one to 11, the seven benefits of our justification And now what Paul's going to do is he's going to switch the spotlight away from all these gifts to the one who gave us the gifts, Jesus Christ himself. Who is this one that we worship? Why is he so different from every other human being on earth? Why should we put our trust in him? This is what Romans 5, verses 12 to 21 are all about. And you're going to notice that Paul's going to use some terms here. He's going to use the term Adam, a first Adam, and a second Adam, okay? And what he's talking about is in the Old Testament, you all know the first man, his name was Adam, but that's the same Hebrew word for man or mankind. So when we're reading through Hebrew in the Old Testament, we have to look at the context to see, is this talking about Adam, the first man? Or is it talking about mankind or man? The reason for that is because Adam is a representation of all of us, and he failed. We've been following in his footsteps all these years. Every generation has followed in the footsteps of the fallen Adam, who has rebelled against God. We've tried to do it our own way, become our own God, and we try to get into heaven ourselves, and we push God out of our lives. We don't welcome him or his gifts. And so, the first Adam, but now, everyone, the second Adam. The one who's the true hero, the true humanity that God intended. It's Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Paul is going to highlight what Jesus is all about. Notice with me, if you would, there in chapter 5, verse 12. And Paul is going to tell us a little bit about our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we want to focus on him this morning. This is what it says, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Not very good news, right? It's a repeat of chapters 1 to 3 in Romans, but telling us another part of it. All of us fall short of God's glory, not only because of our own wrongdoings, but also because we have followed in the legacy of Adam. And we are in a terrible state, not able to save ourselves. Maybe I could explain it like this. I think Joel has a picture up there. And I want to just tell you a story. I don't know if you can recognize the people in this picture. But this is my, me and Michelle. As we were starting our life together... So this is 1986, and we left everything in New Jersey, where we both grew up, and we packed everything, literally everything that we owned, in our Volkswagen Golf, and we drove to Dallas, Texas. And boy, that was an adventure, and uh, I don't know why Michelle would be crazy enough to do that with me. We had just just been married, and we were leaving in that Golf to drive to Texas, And on the way, we stopped halfway, or we thought it was about halfway, it was in Marion, Virginia. Never heard of it really before, except that that's where we got to. We had reserved a hotel room there, and we stayed there that night. And I got up to pay the bill the next morning, went into the office, and you know, how much is it gonna be? And the guy behind the desk says, he shuffles through some papers and he says, paid in full. I said, what do you mean? He's like, you owe nothing. I'm not sure, I was confused, I'm not sure what you mean. He said, paid in full, you can go. But no, I didn't pay anything. There must be some mistakes, can you double check that? Nope, paid. Now, we never really did find out what happened, but we suspected that Michelle's Uncle John, that we were very close to, found out somehow where we were staying, and he paid our bill. When we asked him about it, he just would never give us a straight answer. Do you know that kind of person? And that's the kind of person that Uncle John is. So generous and kind. And we we knew it was him, but he would never admit that he did it. You know, we had a bill to pay, but it was paid in full for us. We didn't deserve it or earn it. It was a gift that we received and it changed everything for us at the hotel, right? Well, here's the thing. I want you to imagine something. That's a nice story about. Matt and Michelle, driving to Dallas. But, guys, imagine this, and I hate to make you think this way, but imagine if Michelle was not my wife, but I was a kidnapper, okay? And so I kidnapped Michelle and put her in my car, and I'm driving across the country, and we stop at that hotel, and somehow I get her in there, and we go to leave the next morning, and I come out to pay the bill. And do you think Uncle John is going to pay the bill? No way. I'm his enemy. He's probably going to track me down. And by now, he would have caught me, right? And he would have tracked me down. He, he would, nothing would have stopped him from doing that. Guys, I wanted to bring that terrible story up to you or that scenario because that's much more what God did for us. It wasn't just a kind thing that he was doing for a nice person. He was giving something to us and paying our bill when we were his enemies, When we offended him and we're guilty and we have nothing to give back to him, that's the kind of God that we have. And the first Adam that we followed, his generation, the next and the next coming all the way to us, we found ourselves in great need of a hero, someone who could possibly come and save us even though we were his enemies. This is what verse 12 begins to talk about. And so death came upon us all rightfully because of what we've done, and so we need an imputation. We need someone to save us from ourselves, and so we come back to this word imputation. What is it? It's someone crediting to my account something that I don't deserve. So let me show you three ways that imputation works in the Bible. The first one is that Adam's sin, when he sinned in the garden, His sin was passed down to me and to you. His sin was imputed to us. Now, I had plenty of my own, don't worry. But I also have Adam's sin on my account. But there's a second imputation. The second imputation is that our sin was imputed to Jesus. He actually took your sin upon himself, and he paid for it. Our sin was given over to him. He didn't deserve that. He was perfect. There's a third imputation. The third imputation was that Jesus' righteousness, all his goodness, was imputed to you. He took your sin away from you and put it on himself. And then he credited your account, not just with how much a hotel would cost, but he lavished you with his gifts and goodness. Do you feel it? Is it personal? Is it personal what God has done for you? And as we look at the three imputations, we realize there's something spectacular happening here. In fact, Martin Luther, he called this the glorious exchange, the glorious exchange. Why would God ever do this for us? Why would he give us such an amazing gift? We just don't know, except that it's his great love for us. Now, as the passage continues in verses 13 and 14, it says to be sure, Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who's the pattern of the one to come. Now, we could take a long time to explain what's going on there, but I think I can simplify it. What Paul's saying Because he had probably a substantial Jewish audience that had come to know Jesus as their Savior. Here's what he's basically saying Adam's sin was imputed to all of us, even before the law was given to Moses. That's what Paul's basically saying. It's not just that when the law came into action under Moses that people became guilty, but from Adam on, we were all found guilty. Paul now turns and he's gonna put the spotlight on our savior, Jesus Christ. And he's gonna point out seven amazing traits or comparisons or contrasts between the first Adam and the true Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And in doing that, we're going to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Before we get that to that, I need to show you, there's three ways that each of us is guilty And we need a savior. We need a spectacular hero to come and save us. There's three ways that we're guilty. The first is that we all have sinned, right? The Bible tells us that. I think none of us would argue. We always say that no one's perfect. I'm guilty for my own sin. But there's a second kind of ways that we're guilty. The second way is that Adam's sin, the sin from Adam as a a representative of of us all was passed on to me. And there's a third way that we're guilty and that is that Adam's corrupt nature has come to us all. Okay, we're all guilty. We get that. Romans 1 to 3 told us that, Paul's picking that up here, but now our savior is going to be highlighted by contrasting Adam and our guilt and Jesus Christ. Let me just show you the seven contrasts quickly. Each verse contains one. Take a look at your Bible, and what you'll notice is that the contrast now is going to be between the first Adam and his failure and the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, that you have. And here's how we're going to show that. Each verse, starting in verse 15, is one of seven contrasts. Read with me, would you? But the gift, that's talking about Jesus, is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace And the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Okay, what's Paul saying? Here's the contrast, everyone. One person sinned, and the result was that many died. Adam sinned, and he passed that down to us all. We had no hope of saving ourselves. But what did Jesus do? The grace of one man lets the gift overflow to the many. We have a wonderful Savior who has saved us all, and that's what we celebrate. Look at verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many transgressions and brought justification. Contrast number two. The judgment of one sin brought condemnation to us all. But the gift of Jesus Christ that followed many transgressions, they allowed us to be justified, to be declared righteous before our God, to be washed clean of all of our sin. And Jesus' righteousness placed upon you all because of Jesus. Look at verse 17. Number three. This is the third contrast. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? For everyone who receives God's gift, it changes everything. Death reigned in Adam, but now in Christ Life reigns for everyone who receives God's abundant gift of salvation. The next contrast in verse 18. Consequently, just as the one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. One sin resulted in condemnation for all. One righteous act re just resulted in justification for us all. Look at verse nineteen: For just as through the disobedience of one, just, I'm sorry, for just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. And we see again this stark contrast in what Jesus did: disobedience. And Jesus' obedience to go to the cross on our behalf made it possible for us to be saved. Bear with me, we're almost we're up to number six. Number six in verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Paul is saying that the law of Moses made it possible for us to see our sin more clearly we realized how far we fall short of God's holiness and his glory, and yet the more sin that we see, the more God's gift takes our sin away. The more that we understand who we are in reality, the more we see God's great love and his grace. Do you think that's true for you? As you've been walking with the Lord, I've heard people compare it to walking into a dark room and you don't turn the light switch on, and you look around, you're like, looks pretty good. I don't see any dust. I don't see any dirt. Everything looks good. We walk into the room. Everything looks fine. We walk back out. We go in a few minutes later, but this time we turn the lights on. Maybe you should have left the lights off. Because as soon as you turn the lights on, you start seeing all the dust on the top of the shelf. There's stuff laying in the room, and it's cluttered. Now we're starting to see more of what's really in the room. It seems like the longer that we walk with the Lord, The more that we begin to see how far we really do fall short of God's glory and how big his grace really is. He showers us with his love and he loves you. He loves you dearly. And if you receive him by faith, he will take all your sins away forever. And he'll place his own righteousness upon you. You don't have to try to be good enough to get to heaven. You don't have to be, try to be good enough to please him. You already are because Jesus gave you that gift. That's the great imputation. It's real. It's not just a credit to your credit card account or to your bank account. It's a credit to who you are in your person that Jesus Christ imputes to you all of his goodness and takes upon himself all of your sin That is the great exchange, that's the glorious exchange. Look at verse 21. So, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the highlight that Paul is showing us is Jesus Christ himself and the amazing gifts that he's given to us in verses one to 11 are because of who Jesus is and what he's done in verses 12 to 21, and only Jesus could do it. He's the only one. Now, why is it? Why is it that Jesus was the only one that could save us? He's the only one. And if you think back, everyone, through the story of the Bible, we see this. Adam, the first man, sins. And then we see a series of heroes, we would think, maybe, that could come and help us or save us but none of them were able to. Adam and who followed? What about Noah? Righteous Noah. We'll restart everything. We'll we'll get rid of all the corruption and Noah and his family will start over. Could it save us? No, it failed. What about Abraham? Could Abraham save us all with this new family and and the arrangement with Abraham, the covenant given to him? No. What about Moses, the great deliverer? Can he save us all? What about the judges, Gideon and Samson, Deborah? No. What about the kings, Saul and David and Solomon? No. What about the prophets, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah? They can save us. No. They all fell short, looking forward to a Messiah, a Christ, who could possibly save us all. Why was Jesus the only one? And Joel's gonna show us right here. There's a reason that only Jesus could save us, and that's because of the fact that Jesus was indeed truly human. For that reason, Jesus could perfectly obey the whole law. The second reason is because Jesus could suffer the punishment for our human sin. So Jesus was truly human, he could also understand you and sympathize with your weaknesses and with the things that you're going through. There's a third third reason there, sympathize with our weaknesses, but Jesus was also God. Not only was he fully human, but he was also fully God, and for that reason, he could obey God through the suffering that he'd have to endure for our sin and have perfect satisfaction and it would be effective before God. Because Jesus was human, he could die for you. Because he's God, he could die for every one of us perfectly. It also helps us to see, because he was truly God, Joel, one more there, um, it helps us to bear, he could bear the righteous anger of God against sin, and yet overcome death, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Well, how, how do we explain this? Maybe a simpler way to say it, Romans 5.8, tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's basically what Paul's saying in this passage. If we compare the first Adam to Jesus Christ, we begin to see how far superior Christ is as our hero, the only one who could ever save us because he's both human, truly human, and truly God. He made the perfect sacrifice by living a perfect life and being obedient to his heavenly father and then going to the cross for us to pay the debt of our sin so that we could be forgiven. You know, when we look at these contrasts, we begin to see what imputation is all about. And on the cross, we see it, but it's hard for us still to understand. How is it that one person could take what I'm guilty of and pay for it? You know, I think we understand the part that says God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The verses that come just before this, they say, you know, there might be a person in the world who would die for a good person. They would lay down their life for a good person. Wouldn't you call that person a hero? If they lay down their life for someone else that's a good person. And maybe for a righteous person, someone might dare to die. But here's the thing. Jesus died for us while we were still his enemies. Is that personal to you? Do you feel like you understand that, what Jesus did for you? You know, we hear stories like this and it breaks our heart to hear them because we live in a broken world where where things like this happen. But on 4th of July of this year, you might remember in Highland Park, Illinois, shots rang out and of all the like unthinkable things to happen, there was a shooter on the loose. Do you remember the story? One of the families that was deeply impacted by that was the family of Kevin McCarthy And after those few minutes of that shooting, uh, someone rushed in to try to help. And they found Kevin, he was hunched over and there was something moving under him. They came in in all the panic to try to help. And so they tried to see if Kevin was okay, but he was already gone. They moved him a little bit and there was his two and a half year old son underneath his body. Did you hear this story? Kevin, gathered his son up, put him under himself and shielded him from the shooter and his own life was lost. Now, I know that some of you are parents and you would say in a second you would do the same thing. Am I right? It's because of the love that you have. You know what that feels like. You would do it in a second because you love that loved one and you would gladly give up your life if they could be saved. You know, Kevin, he gave up his life to save Aidan And from a human standpoint, we would say he's a hero. Jesus did that for you in just the same way, but even more. Jesus was able not only to protect you and save your life, but also to give you a brand new life, a life that will keep on living. I think sometimes we hear stories about Jesus and think it's so long ago and so far away that in some ways he wasn't like a real person or something. But he was. People say, you know, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you. And he could look through the corridors of time, although it's been over 2,000 years ago now, he could look through the corridors of time and see you and to know that it was you that he was dying for, that he was taking all of your sins upon himself. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we could live. This great exchange happens when we put our trust in Christ, when we believe in Him, we receive Him into our life, and that faith saves us. From that moment, the Bible says that we're regenerated from the inside out. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of our life and gives us a brand new life. We now have an eternal life that will be with God forever, but right now, He changes us. He gives us a life that's filled with purpose and meaning, Every day I know that I'm on a mission because God's placed me here. I can share this message with others so that they too can hear. You know, it's hard to put into words what Jesus has done for us. And as we think about it, we know that many times hymns are written about Jesus, and maybe some of you remember this one. Why did they nail him to Calvary's tree? Why? Tell me, why was he there? And the hymn writer's writing that because Jesus was perfect. He was beautiful. Everything that he did brought life. He had the words of wisdom. He was filled with grace and truth. He had all authority. He was loving and kind, and yet he knew how to confront people. Everything about him was absolutely perfect and wonderful and beautiful. Why was he there? The hymn writer goes on. Jesus, the helper, the healer, the friend. Why? Tell me, why was he there? All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. That's why he was there. It was because of me and because of you. This, this uh, we used to call them choruses, do you remember? He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. His name is Jesus, and he washed my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace all day long, because Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Um, Pastor Lockridge, S.M. Lockridge, was the pastor at Calvary Baptist in San Diego, California. And he gave a kind of a famous sermon. He's with the Lord now since the year 2000. He was 87 when he went home to be with the Lord. And he just had to put into words what he thought of his Savior, Jesus Christ. The sermon probably was about 40 or 45 minutes long, but I'm just going to read a few minutes of the sermon that he gave, and I'm going to tell you right up front, I can't read it like he did. I can't say it like he did, but I hope that you can hear the words and what he's saying about our Lord Jesus. As I read this, would you just take a minute to listen and to think about, is it personal to you? Do you love Jesus because of what he's done for you? Has he changed your life and impacted you by becoming the second Adam, the true one, the hero to come and save us all? What does he mean to you? This is what Pastor Lockridge said. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel, the king of righteousness, the king of the ages, the king of heaven, and the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and He guides, He heals the sick, He cleanses the lepers, He forgives the sinners, He discharges debtors, He delivers the captives, defends the feeble, He blesses the young, He serves the unfortunate, He regards the aged, He rewards the diligent, He beautifies the meek. Do you know Him? His office is manifold, His promise is sure, His life is matchless, His goodness is limitless, His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you that heaven, the heaven of heavens can't contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get them out of your mind. You can't get them off your hands. You can't outlive them, and you can't live without them. The Pharisees couldn't stand them, but they found out they couldn't stop them. Pilate couldn't find a fault in them. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree, but Herod couldn't kill them. Death couldn't handle them, and the grave couldn't hold them. That's my king.